Thanks for tuning in. This is Arun, your host of Scraps, a podcast where we explore stories of scientific brilliance in science and innovation. As you probably listened in the last episode, which was our recording of the Twitter Spaces session that we did on the 50th anniversary of the war on drugs announcement by President Nixon, we did a second follow-up interview with a very valuable person that I think most people need to hear. This is a recording of an interview that we did with a former undercover drug cop, Neil Woods, and I think everybody needs to pay some serious attention to what he has to say based on his experience on the streets. Here is Neil Woods. Thank you so much, Neil, for joining us today. It's a pleasure to to have you on. Uh, as you know, I think we are uh, a science and technology kind of innovation podcast. Uh, we've explored many different topics, but I think this one is extremely special because I think we've always wanted to talk about the impact of of science and 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 impact of science on society. Um, but this one and what we're going to discuss with you. Uh, is probably the one that is going to most impact society in real time as we speak. Uh, and with your experience, it's it's a great um, kind of outlook to have th- that you're willing to share with us. Would you like to start off by just telling us about how you started your career and a bit of your early background? Yes, yeah, certainly. Um, so I'm, I'm a former police officer. I started in the police at the age of 19. Um and I, I didn't realise how naive I was, actually. I, I didn't realise how, how young and inexperienced I was till I was thrown in the deep end by joining the police. Um, and I was terrible at it. I was, I was not very good at policing at all, and I almost lost my job several times in the, in the first couple of years. I just didn't deal with conflict very well. And um, you know, I, I was shocked by a lot of things, but, but I clung on. Was it because you were not prepared for it? Possibly, uh, but also I, I grew up in quite a, a middle-class town. Not, I, we, it wasn't a wealthy family, but it was a very sheltered town. Um, and so, you know, suddenly working in a city, it was just a bit of a shock to me. Um, and the arrogant, with the arrogance of youth, I thought I could take on the world. So, yeah, I, I just wasn't prepared. And to, if I'm honest, I was probably just way too young to go into that kind of um, arena. You know, it's, it's harder than it looks. <laughs> But, but I, I hung on, um, and after four years, I was just starting to improve at the job, and I got an attachment to the drug squad. And at that time, we had the biggest moral panic in the United Kingdom about about drugs. You know, we, we often get moral panics in the press and the media about, about drug consumption. But this one was the mother of them all, because it was, it was about crack cocaine. And we'd been getting news and media coverage of what had been happening in, in America, allegedly, with crack cocaine for, for years before we had even had any of this stuff. So when it hit the streets, there was, um, there was a, a reaction. You know, the public were in a frenzy of fear about it that they'd been, been whipped up into. Um, so in my, in my attachment, the drug squad looked at, one of the guys from the drug squad looked at me and said, do you fancy having a go at buying some crack cocaine? Which just wasn't a question I was expecting. Um, but but I had to go, and I was given my twenty-pound note and sent to this terrace door in Derby. Um, and I knocked on the door, and I, and, uh, I ended up buying a twenty-pound stone of of crack from this from this huge dealer. And you know, as I walked away, he was very nice. Actually, he said, "You take care now. Don't get yourself arrested," which I thought was very considerate of him. Um, but you see, that low level, or sort of starting at the ground level. Um, undercover work didn't happen in the UK at all, at all. I know that that kind of work had gone on in the United States for a long time, but the only undercover work that happened in the UK was higher end, um, not working at the street level. So it was completely new tactic, completely new. But then, of course, the, the, the drug squad saw this tactic greedily. You know, they saw the potential for meeting the demands of central government who wanted to see huge results in response to this moral panic. And so that day really defined the next 14 years of my life because I I ended up being good at that kind of work. And I I went from sort of a few days to a few weeks and then 
no less than six or seven months undercover at any one time. And I spent the time travelling around England, infiltrating street street dealing gangs and trying to climb my way up and get to the to the gangsters who were running running whole areas of a city. Um, so yeah, <laughs> so that that was that was my um, that was my career defined for for a, for almost a decade and a half. And for that for that first undercover work and and as you started to infiltrate the system and and hopefully make some arrests or I don't know hopefully, um, did you feel like you were making a positive impact? Oh yeah, I mean to start with, absolutely. Um, I was thrilled to be able to catch who I saw as some of the most dangerous people in our communities. And and a lot of them were the most dangerous people. And yeah, I felt I was making an impact. But quite quickly, I started to doubt um, what I was doing because, you know, when I started in the police, I had an extremely judgmental view of anybody who had a problem with drugs. Like like many people, I, I had a very conservative and traditional view, very stigmatizing view that anybody who had a problem with drugs, they just made a stupid decision. They shouldn't have bothered trying it. And they didn't have the willpower to get out of it. So I just looked down on them. That's what I did. I looked down on them. But of course, I had no training for this undercover work. There was no training at all. I, I, I helped develop the training a few years later. And so what I had to do is to learn about this new world in a naive fashion. And to do that, I had to get to know all of the, the problematic heroin and crack cocaine users on the streets to to move amongst them and blend in with them and in order to do that I had to empathize with them I had to understand them and so I, I listened to them as they talked about their childhoods and and the circumstances which had led them to, to where they were and quite quickly I realized that these are not people that to be looked down upon these are people who need need help um, because there's certainly the vast majority of them, were clearly trying to deal with childhood trauma. Now, I started to understand that then, a long, long time before I, I read all of the academic studies which actually proved that. I mean, nowadays I follow, I follow all of the, you know, all of the studies that that, that that look into that, and you know, I read Gabor Mate or any of the other great thinkers on this topic. But I was I was finding that out for myself at the time that these were just people who were hurting. These were people who had significant emotional pain. But I, I, I didn't care, really. I was, I, was, I was having a changing view of how, how these vulnerable people were and their motivations, but, and I knew I was causing harm to them as well. I knew I was, because these are vulnerable people and I was manipulating them. I, I, even, I even had one guy in a, on, a, on a job in Nottinghamshire who... At the end of the operation, all of the gangsters were arrested. So was he. And when he was in the cells, he ended up being on minute-to-minute watch, suicide watch, because he was struggling with his childhood trauma and he thought that he'd finally found someone who understood, someone he could talk to, a friend, and that was me. And of course I was good at being his friend and listening to him because that's, that's you know, that's I'm a ruthless undercover cop. I'm going to use those emotions against him, which is what I did. But he ended up being suicidal because that one, my betrayal of him was the last straw for his mental health. And, you know, that, that hurt, that, that was hard to deal with. But I still justified that behaviour in myself by taking the view that the end justified the means. And I did wrestle with that. You know, I really thought hard about that at the time that the end justified the means. And, you know, if anyone listening to this thinks that I was incredibly ruthless, well, yeah, I was. But that's that's what undercover policing is about, it's ruthlessness. But also it's a microcosm of the, of the broader policy issue that any punitive drug policy, prohibition, is based on this idea that the end justifies the means, that we can cause harm to people, we can send them to prison, we can, we, we can demonise them, because the end justifies the means, because because we have this ideal uh, that if, that we will catch the bad guys, you know, we will catch. And those punishments would, in turn, kind of help them to understand that what they were doing was wrong, and as a result, that would probably reform them. 
I think that's a very kind of heartfelt kind of recollection from you there, Neil. Um, from there, if we were to kind of then go into uh, the kind of people that you actually had to apprehend uh, as 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 an undercover cop. Uh, initially, when you started knocking on that on the terraced home uh, to with your twenty dollar bill or twenty pound bill, uh, you actually did you was that an operation just to identify the chain or or did you actually in the early days to when you actually got a bit more kind of sophisticated in terms of infiltrating the gangs and all of that did it actually start off with with arresting uh the smaller kind of dealers all the way up and and i mean just walk us through how that kind of built up over time and and what gave you the confidence that you and the department the drug squad to be able to kind of entrust you with the responsibility to go higher and bigger yeah i mean to start with it was short operations catching dealers who were who were at ground level um but then, but then later on, as you say, it got more sophisticated in that I would spend months gathering evidence of conspiracy. So, you know, th- through the gathering of things like phone numbers, obviously th- there was the evidence of purchasing the drugs because, you know, the, the transaction and the, the drugs in my possession is evidence in itself. But, uh, but also there would be more sophisticated um, evidence of conspiracy building up with um, phone numbers and then there'd be the follow-up phone data or, or, or other data to back it up. Um, and I can give you an example of a of, of a of an operation if you like. Just just after just after the guy uh, was suicidal, I actually gave up, gave up undercover work for a few weeks. But the, the sergeant who was arranging these operations phoned me up one day and said, "Look, Woodsy, we need you to do this next job because this gang are even more vicious than the last lot. This gang is is quite an infamous gang in the UK called the Burger Bar Boys, and they were using." Um, gang rape as part of their reputation building. Now they were doing the normal kind of gangster stuff, you know, kidnappings, maimings, all of that kind of thing. But 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 they were also using sexual violence, and so I was talked into doing it again. Really, so I was introduced. I, I went to this town of Northampton where they'd taken over, completely taken over the town, and I found my vulnerable people to to manipulate them, and I then spent spent weeks and weeks trying to get an introduction to the top gangsters and eventually I got introduced to them and I got taken into their where they were whole, sort of holding court in this snooker club and um, one, of, one of them came in in the hooded figure and, and said yeah what do you what do you want and he stood looking down at me and then these four other hooded figures came in and started circling me and while I was being interrogated and my, and my mate, the guy who was introducing me, was being interrogated, these four hooded figures would occasionally headbutt me or punch me in the ribs. Or, and this went on and on and on. And I, just, I was rapidly coming to the conclusion that I wasn't going to walk out of there in one piece because, you know, I knew the reputation of these people. Um, and, you know, you could just feel the, the violence in the air. And, but eventually he said, yeah, okay, what do you want? And then at, at that queue, the four hooded figures walked off. They stopped walking around me. It was all incredibly sinister and orchestrated. And anyway, then, then I said to him, well, I'll have one and one, please, um, which, which, which there meant uh, a, tw- a point four of heroin and a point four of crack cocaine. But then I was into them then, and I could start buying increasing amounts, increasing weights. I, could, I started trading stolen property with them, and all, all sorts of... Uh, ways of gathering evidence anyway for that event after seven months I had got evidence against 96 people there was the six Burger Bar boys one of which was implicated in seven different murders in Birmingham I mean these these were decent you know these were proper gangsters so I've got evidence against those six but also 90 other people who were involved in their trade and I knew that I'd got no one else to meet, no one else to get introduced to. I'd got every single phone number. There was no names I hadn't known. And I thought, wow, this job's going to be huge. This is going to be so impactful because I caught everyone. And so the operation, the arrest side of the operation was massive. We got police from five different counties to help out, hundreds of officers, huge amounts of resources. And then a, a, a week or so after the operation, when the dust had settled, the intelligence officer who was tasked with keeping his ear to the ground spoke to me and he says, yeah, 
we managed to interrupt the heroin and crack cocaine supply for a full two hours. Two hours, seven months of work. I almost got myself killed twice on that operation. 96 people arrested. Enormous resources, all for the sake of interrupting that market for two hours. Now, I, I don't know for certain that it's the Burger Bar Boys' infamous rivals, the Johnson crew, who took up that opportunity that I had created. But I created an opportunity for someone. I made some people extremely happy to have had that opportunity to make that that to increase their share of the market and to and to make that enormous amount of money. And it's imp- it's important to note that my experience of that operation of interrupting the drug supply for. for for a negligible amount of time, is replicated at every single level all over the world. I'm part of the Law Enforcement Action Partnership, which is an international movement of police who want an evidence-based drug policy. And in speaking to those police all over the world, they all have stories which replicate my experience. That at each level, street level, regional level, national or international level, all you do by having a large seizure arresting a gang, all you do is create an opportunity in that marketplace for somebody else. Police are brilliant at catching drug dealers. They are. They're brilliant at it. You give them twice the resources, they'll catch twice as many. But they never reduce the size of the market. They only change the shape of that market. So, but there's there's another issue here. It's, yes, you... The, the amount of time that the drug trade was interrupted was less than ideal and, and not reflective of the amount of work that you put in, certainly. But these people were bad people on other fronts, too. It wasn't just the drug dealing. It's like you wanted in, in relation to a murder and gang rape. I mean, those are things, regardless of what you think about drug policy, those people need to be off the street. I, I, I feel like Maybe the, the the drug, the corresponding drug outcome wasn't ideal, but these other people, I mean, they're scary people. Yeah, absolutely. They are. They were definitely some of the most, the worst uh, and scariest people I've, I've ever come across. There's no doubting that. But we need to, we need to realize that these people and their behavior is a product of current drug policy because all of their violence is connected with the business model. It's connected with increasing their share of the market and protecting that share of the market. That's what all of their violence was about. And, you know, I, I remember, I'll, I'll tell you about a young man I, I started buying heroin from in an, an operation in the city of Leicester. He was a 16-year-old and he, he was good fun, to be honest. He was cheeky. I could have a laugh with him. He was like a likable lad. Six months later, he was a terrifying 17-year-old. Because over the space of that six months, as a part of the gang, the gang he was a part of, he had learned to behave as his gang required him to learn to behave in order to protect their share of the market. Because shy boys don't keep their share in the market. They don't. So what we need to realize here is that our current policy policy is corrupting our young men. It's corrupting our young men. It's making them violent. And you know, there's no way. A year before I met him, when he was 15, he was thinking that in a couple of years' time he would become a, a budding, violent city city gangster. There's just no way. It's corrupting everything. All of the violence in our inner cities, That this, it's you, you can see it taking shape. And with every passing year, it gets worse and worse. You know, if you look, if you look in the UK, for example, um, for, for the for the book, uh, my second book, Drug Wars, we researched change over time because one of the most important things that's missing from the understanding of current drug policy is how it has made things worse in our society over time and if we we went to liverpool and interviewed three generations of liverpool gangsters one who was getting into the heroin trade in the 1970s one who uh was involved in organized crime and actually became britain's most wanted man in, in in the 1990s uh, when organised crime was becoming more corporate and, and, and international. And then I interviewed um, a 16-year-old who had escaped the life of being a gangster in Liverpool, 16. And perhaps the most important question 
particularly in a UK context where we don't really see guns. Um, one of the most important questions we asked was, as a young man getting into this trade, how easy was it for you to get hold of a firearm? And the first one would said, well, look, if I wanted a firearm, I could have gone to the higher-ups. That was his phrase, not mine. I could have gone to the higher-ups and said, look, I've got a beef with someone, I need a gun. And they would have listened patiently at the reasons why I wanted one. And then they would have said, no, don't be so stupid. Why would you want to draw attention to yourself and to me by using a gun? If you've got a problem with someone, use your fists. So I spoke to the next one, asked the same question. And he says, well, we knew that we had access to automatic weapons if we really, really needed them. But only a select few would be able to do that. And we'd never let the youngsters near them. Of course we wouldn't. And then I asked the 16-year-old. And he said, well, I'd need a couple of hours. In fact, the last time I needed a gun, he said, when I went to the guy, he says, oh, you're going to have to wait for a foot. You're going to have to wait until the end of the day or tomorrow. And he said, but, but I've got a hand grenade if you want that. And so he said, oh, yeah. So I, so I said, OK, I'll take the hand grenade. He was 15 at that time. And he was protecting his area, his share of the market with a hand grenade. Now, this is really important to the, in, in the UK context, because up until the end of the 1960s, if you had a problem with heroin, you went to the doctor and the doctor prescribed it to you. Pharmaceutical grade heroin. There was no illicit market as a result of that. None at all. Under American pressure, Britain followed the American style of prohibition in regards to heroin and banned it. And that's when our problem started. And so in only three generations in the UK, we've gone from a doctor prescribing heroin with a prescription pad to 15-year-olds controlling the supply with hand grenades. And that is the, that's cause and effect. That's change over time. And there's really two, two different layers that you've kind of laid out in front of us. First is the, is the impact of how the drug policy has changed the dynamics of, of how things are done into it being more organized, high level, high profile, or more scarier kind of crime and crime organizations. And the second one is more about kind of the the criminalization or the increased brainwashing and kind of push of these young boys predominantly in, in into kind of the drug trade uh, as kind of dealers, so to speak. Um, and then there is the third aspect, which you kind of alluded to at the very beginning, which is the impact of of these drugs on the people who actually use them. And what and through your experience you might have actually seen evidence whereby where the consumers of the product as well uh because the people who would actually oppose the 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 statement of saying that drug policy has failed would actually say that oh but it's basically the people who are actually addicted to these drugs it makes them more violent and from your experience i'm sure you've actually seen uh evidence of of how these drugs have actually caused them to actually maybe seek, maybe kind of get into more violent behavior as well in order to procure these things. I mean, can you give us an example of that? Because I just want to kind of really understand about how this drug policy has actually affected all of these things, right? I mean, I think you kind of gave the evidence in the first two, but for the people who would actually counter the view, I mean, they are actually, we need to kind of lay that side of it as well. Yeah, so um, I mean, the first, the first, the most. Before I go into the the crime that's caused by uh, problematic substance users, um, I think it's it's important to note to emphasise that people who are self medicating are generally doing it for childhood trauma. So, for example, I met one woman in Northampton who called called Uma, and she said to me one day, "You know, I can come off heroin, and I do sometimes for a tolerance break. I reduce my my consumption." But, I, but, it, but when I do, I become suicidal because I remember the feeling of my, my uncle's fingernails when he sexually abused me as a child. Now, I just wanted to put that out there before I answered about the crime because when we talk about the crime committed by problematic heroin users, it, it, the risk is that it increases the stigma. You know, we see them as, as a crime-causing group of people. Now, we have to remember... 75% of people who use heroin don't do it problematically. 
But for the 25% that do use it problematically, some of them commit crime, they do. And they commit so much crime that in the UK, it's estimated that 50% of acquisitive crime thefts are actually as a result of the problematic heroin and crack cocaine markets. Now, going back to the British system in the 1960s, we didn't have any crime like that. Nobody committed crime for their heroin or cocaine because if you had a problem with those drugs, you got them from the doctor. So there was no associated crime whatsoever. And Britain is the most, is, is the best example in the world, actually, of how a non-prohibition system uh, 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 treating it as a health problem can go can can go into a prohibi- prohibition system and the dramatic effects on crime. So I, I remember speaking to a guy in, in Leicester who he he'd he'd actually got severe health problems because he failed to pay a debt to a drug dealer and as a result of that they tied him to a chair and poured acid onto the top of his knees so there's the his, uh, his tendons and his kneecaps had been burnt away by acid so his knees didn't work so he's wa- he walked around with with crutches and I remember one day he was talking to me and he opened up and he, 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 he burst into tears. He started crying because of how guilty he felt that he'd stolen this woman's handbag. And he said, he said, mate, you would have laughed at me. Here I was trying to run away with my crutches with this woman's handbag over my shoulder and this woman trying to run after me, but she's quite old. And he says, I can't believe it's come to this. I can't believe I've gone so low as to do this. And, and it for him... It, it, it was increasing his mental health crisis that he was he was struggling to deal with his own behaviour, and there was no help for him. And all of all of the resources of the state, all of that that could have helped him if there was investment in those resources, they're all channeled into me. I was there listening to him, and I was out to get him. So, so that's that's perhaps, and I hope that under, that explains, you know. I hope that answers your question adequately. So I think the same way that, and using the UK as a as an example of being able to demonstrably see the cause and effect over the course of just three generations, um, that's that's something that you can encapsulate in a in a short period, relatively short period of time. And the same way, it took us a little while to get into the problem. It's going to take us at least the same amount of time to get out of the problem. So while we're creating new policies and looking at um, the stigmas that we attach to, to drug use and misuse, in the meantime, as we're addressing those issues, there are still people of the general population who aren't involved in this, who are at risk of being victims of the crimes that are perpetrated by the people doing the drugs, selling the drugs, all those sorts of things. How do we balance their need for protection with our long-term plan to provide empathy and services and treatment for the folks who shouldn't have to be taking this road? Well, the answer, as in with most things, is, is to follow the evidence in policymaking. And evidence is key here because the evidence quite clearly shows, for example, and we know this from not just the British system, but we also know in Switzerland, since 1994, the Swiss government has been using, they use British evidence to inform their policy as well. Since 1994, they've been prescribing heroin to any problematic heroin user. As a result of that, their acquisitive crime has dropped by 50%. 50%. Now, that is an extraordinary policy success, extraordinary, that if we, if we, and the evidence is very clear, you know, the Swiss are very good at reviewing the success of their policy, putting that policy to the vote, and it has been voted on three times again since. And the the support for that policy amongst the general public in Switzerland has increased each time because they have this tradition of following evidence in policymaking and democracy and all of that wild stuff. Um, so, so the evidence is in evidence. Now, it, the the answer is in evidence, but the problem we have is that essentially this drug policy issue is a, it's a social justice issue. And in that regard, it has a lot in common with such things as um, the, the illegality of homosexuality, you know, the, 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 uh, 
the movement that ended that, the civil rights movements in 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 the USA, Black Lives Matter movement, which of course completely is linked to drug policy anyway, uh, gender equality, whatever it is, these issues don't really change through political leadership. They change through social movement. So the public has to start to become get behind these policies. But the problem we have and what slows down the growth of social movement to follow the evidence for this policy is the fact that the police control the narrative. So if you were to see international drug prohibition as a business, it would have the most powerful marketing strategy in the history of marketing. Because wherever you are in the world, whichever nation, the police are constantly press releasing what they do in regards to their activities in policing drugs. And they put out three repetitive images all over the world. It's the same from Japan, USA, South Africa, wherever you are. The first one is the image of people's doors being smashed in, normally in the morning. The second is the, the row of mugshots of all the people, all the people in the gang who've been arrested. And the third, and perhaps the most important, is the, the image of seizures of drugs. You know, the sort of hay bale-sized blocks of cocaine or the you, you, whatever it is, it's in it, and it's always some kind of record seizure. But these, this is constantly being put out in the media as press release, and now increasingly on social media. And the subtext to these images, even if they're not accompanied by wild, scrupulous, unscrupulous claims by the police, the subtext to these images are is that this current system is working. The public are reassured that the police are doing something about this. But the problem is. This is only evidence of police activity. It's not evidence of a reduction in crime because it doesn't reduce crime. And in fact, it does the opposite. Because wherever you create a gap in the market, you create what, what is known as the freelancer effect. It's more often than not, it creates an opportunity for more than one person and they tend to fight over that opportunity. And so it more often than not increases violence as a result of that activity. And this is shown all over the world. Police intelligence databases show this. So the police, for the most part, do understand this. But the public are not informed of this. It also increases corruption. And corruption, we should be worried about corruption, really worried. Because what happens is, in a city, if the police arrest somebody who controls half of the methamphetamine supply in a city the, 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 the people or the gang who are most able to take up that up that gap in the market that opportunity is the gang that's, that supplies the other half of the city so what you do over time is you you increase monopolies and if you increase a monopoly that means one gang or individual increases their share of the wealth where they increase their share of the wealth they have more money to invest in corruption and trust me, every single person in organised crime wants to invest in corruption because it's how, it's how they increase their profits, it's how they make themselves safer. And we have a situation now where entire nations are not run by democratic institutions or even traditional dictators. They're run by international drug cartels. And examples of that are uh, many nations in West Africa like Guinea, Guinea-Bissau and Senegal. They are now run by international cartels, drug cartels. And international corruption is only going in one direction. And the harder we police this, the faster it grows. That is that is very powerful, uh, Neil. Uh, absolutely. So I think you kind of mentioned um, kind of Switzerland uh, as, as a model in terms of them looking at evidence-based policymaking, etc. Uh, so that is at the governmental level. And I, and I think the other aspect that you kind of mentioned was more at a personal kind of uh, level in terms of drug consumption. Um, so there, I think one of the key things, and I just want to dig a bit more deeper in terms of what your view, especially having looked at the various models around the world, et cetera, what is the best way to actually uh, reduce drug consumption? Because this problem is not going away unless... Um, the amount of drug consumption actually goes down in society. Uh, and for that, I believe there is evidence across multiple countries. Uh, so can you actually tell us a bit more about that uh, as well? Yeah, I'm really glad you asked that question and framed it in the way that you do, actually, because 
what people seem so concerned about the levels of drug consumption but it's not the numbers of drug consumption we need to be worried about it's the it's the it's the amount of problematic consumption now even according to the united nations office on drugs and crime um statistics and you know they are the that's that's the prohibition beast itself even according to their statistics 90% of drug use is non problematic 90%. Now, that's a lot of people who are just doing what they want to do with their own mind and body, and it's not causing them or anyone else any problems. The 10% that do... Which they would anyway do with alcohol, right? I mean, and alcohol is a classic example. I mean, people will misuse alcohol, they will abuse it, and that's all based on their yeah, own exactly, will. Exactly. And interesting, uh, you mentioned alcohol. It's the same percentage for, for alcohol, actually. The same percentage. It's ten, the 10% of people... They use it, um, use it problematically. And, you know, that 10%, though, it's, it, it's a sliding scale. Some people will need more intervention than others. Some people will naturally find their way out of that problem consumption, and others will need more help. You know, people are different. So the numbers we need to be concerned with is problematic use. Now, if you were to design a policy system which made problematic consumption more likely, and easy for people to exploit it. It would be the current system that we have. So there are various innovations around the world which do better than our punitive system. And one, of, of course, is Portugal. In Portugal, they have decriminalised drug possession. So they treat drug consumption as a health issue, not a criminal one. Um, and as a result of their system, drug consumption has stayed the same. It's not increased it's not decreased, it's stayed the same. So people who say, well, they can't, we can't decriminalise because that would encourage people to use. The evidence is quite clear there that that's not the case. But the important number which has gone down is the number of problematic users. Because when you start treating this as a health issue, not a criminal one, then you can help people. And investing in health interventions is a significantly cheaper than policing as well. It's cheaper to do this. It's, it's more cost-effective evidence-based policy. But, you know, Portugal is great because they went for one of the highest drug deaths in Europe up to the year 2000. So now they have almost the lowest drug deaths in Europe in only 20 years, which is incredible. Again, a, a, an incredibly dramatic policy success. But, you know, I come at this from a policing perspective and Portugal is not ideal to me because even though... Those people are being cared for. Significantly less people die. Yes, of course, that's great. But it's still organised crime that controls those markets. It's still organised crime and getting rich and corrupting systems as a result of those markets. So we need to take control. We need to take control away from organised crime. And the only way we can do that is to regulate the drug markets. For, for heroin, that's the easiest way, easiest one, because we prescribe, we medicalise it, we go back to treating it as a purely health issue. And I know that in terms of the public debate is particularly complicated in America because, because you have this two-tiered opioid crisis. You know, you've got, you've got the um, unreg unregulated prescribing from doctors, over-prescribing from doctors. But you've also got the dual, you know, the same problem that the rest of the world has, which is the illicit market of, of heroin, which is obviously now being taken over by the... The, the, the more dangerous fentanyls. So you, you've got a, a more complicated problem in America than, than, than most of the world, but you still you still got those answers based in evidence, which is that you need to treat this as a health issue and not a criminal one. For, for the other drugs, you know, we looked to the United States for the way that you regulated the cannabis market. You know, we used your evidence, and it's powerful evidence that it's a success. And the most important piece of evidence that's coming out of the United States and cannabis is that wherever the adult market has been regulated, underage consumption has gone down. Now, that's an important and very powerful statistic. It proves that a regulated drug market is safer for our young people. Now, why on earth would we stop at cannabis? Because cannabis doesn't kill people. Look at MDMA. You know, the, the electronic dance music uh, industry across the world, especially in the United States, is growing exponentially. It's a massive 
business. And it's fueled by MDMA. So let's get a grips. Let's stop the risk. Let's reduce the risk. Let's save people's lives and regulate the MDMA market. So this is this is actually a bit. Um, it, there are so many facets to this. And America is a complicated beast um, just because of our stratification of social and political views, our population, our diversity across, you know, the entire continent it's a it's a big place and not everybody thinks the same way and um, what you're describing is very much in line with our libertarian party which is it's my body it's none of your business what i do with it as long as i'm not harming other people back off pal um and and certainly that party is growing in in recognition and in, in numbers and then you're talking about legalizing the marijuana um business and there, there seem to be two motivators there. One is the the group of people who are lobbying for, again, the libertarian version of its use, um, and arguing that it's safer now. It's it's harder to cut weed with anything um, untoward, not like cutting uh, crack with fentanyl and heroin and, and and those sorts of things. So safety is their argument. People on the other side who might not otherwise endorse marijuana sales are in it for the tax revenue, which is huge, absolutely huge. Um, I I grew up in a household. Nancy Reagan may have been my, you know, I mean, she might as well have been my mom. The don't do drugs. They're bad. They're evil. Horrible people do them. You'll turn into a homeless person on the street and nobody will love you. So don't do drugs. Um I'm sure you encounter a lot of those people and those are deep-seated beliefs. And so how do you change their minds? How do you get them to at least hem and haw and say, well, maybe you have a point because that's an emotional standpoint or emotional point of view. And data doesn't always convince an emotional or win an emotional argument. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, it's important from my point of view as an activist to make it very clear that this is a cross-party issue. This is an issue that stretches right across the political spectrum, and there is something in this for everybody. Now, of course, you you, you suggest that my views are more in line with the Libertarian Party in America, but trust me, the Libertarians wouldn't like the public health kind of regulations I want attached to the to this regulation. You know, I, I want regulatory models based on public health. Um and and I mean strict regulation. <laughs> let's actually let's actually expand on that, Neil, because I think I think it's extremely important. I think especially as 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 a scientist in a science podcast here, I think it's important for us to kind of get that view across that this is actually a pan party issue and it does not belong to one type of demographic or or, or kind of ideology. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, when we were when we were still having in person conferences, I I spoke at um, the Conservative Party conference here in the UK and the Labour Party conference and the Scottish National Party conference. Uh, my organisation helped write the Green Party conference um, manifesto on drugs. So we're engaging with each party in every colour of, of of politics equally. And there really is something in this for everybody. And, and it's important that we make it clear that this, this is not a partisan issue. This is, we're arguing for following evidence, pure and simple. And the evidence is clear, whatever your background is. But, you know, you, you, you make a good point, Jojo, that, um, you know, some people have deep-rooted beliefs, but we need to cast ideology aside and look at the actual impact of this policy. And however much you feel disgusted at the idea of consuming drugs you know that that's a that's a deep-seated prejudice created by decades of 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 media representation misinformation propaganda really um you, you still need to see the reality of the impact on crime on the growth of organized crime on the corruption and also vulnerable people who who um, are self-medicating for some deep-seated uh, emotional trauma, emotional pain, you know, even if you're the sort of person who doesn't care, who still wants to say, well, they still shouldn't have made that stupid decision, even if you don't care about them, 
you've still got to care about the impact of crime in your in your community and it's and and the only way to significantly reduce the 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 power of organized crime is to treat that vulnerable person um as having a health problem rather than having a moral failing or a criminal one because you know look at switzerland that problematic heroin user has been prescribed their drug by the government and as a result they have literally had the most successful the only successful policy in the world that's taken the money straight out of the pockets of gangsters and who who doesn't want to take the money out of the pockets of gangsters I, ch- I challenge anybody across this political spectrum, both in Europe and the United States, that you know it's hard to argue that that's not. And the political point. leader or the 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 uh, the politician who actually spearheaded that was actually a conservative politician, if I'm correct. Yeah, that, that's the great Ruth Dreyfus, who 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 I have met. In fact, I've shared a platform with. I'm proud to say the great Ruth Dreyfus, who later became the president of Switzerland at the time she was the health minister and you know she had this fantastic um way of marketing this idea to answer your question Jojo how do, how do you sell this idea to people well she addressed addressed the Swiss government and said no Swiss citizen gets left behind that was her that was her phrase the principal phrase for selling that politically and yeah she was a very conservative very conservative politician but she also advocated following the evidence and a There's another politician who has very successfully used the evidence within drug policy to sell some kind of drug reform and that's Justin Trudeau because to my to my mind I I'm, I'm well I am sure that he's the only um leader of a party who has actually led a general election campaign as as drug policy reform has been one of his main topics his cannabis reform policy was one of his three main campaigning topics and what he did is he broke it down to the evidence he had the arguments utterly refined and simplified and he won over the canadian public and you know a lot of the um the studies afterwards showed that that was one of the reasons the liberal party won so you know you can win on this topic if you explain to people why it's important to them that's that's great uh do you want to tell us a bit more about uh the law enforcement action partnership as well uh because that is something that you are intimately involved with and i think that spans both sides of the atlantic as well um so tell us a bit more about that uh yes yes it does so i'm on the board for leap in the usa um and that this usa is where leap started which i think is beautifully ironic because you know this this disaster of an international drug policy um was it's the it's the fault of the USA <laughs> it's essentially united states domestic racism uh, exported around the world by aggressive foreign policy that's why we have this worldwide drug policy problem so i think it's fantastic that leap began in the united states and it because i i do genuinely believe that our organization is key is key to to changing this policy worldwide because we're made up exclusively of law enforcement figures you know we are we are serving or retired uh, police or other law enforcement prosecutors judges whatever and because we speak from the front lines because we speak from our experience you know we fought this war for you and we're telling you it doesn't work because we're able to say that we we have impact you know um if you if we have a room with an audience it doesn't matter if they're dubious ideologically opposed more often than not we will have that whole audience won over after an hour's talk we will because because of the experience we have and, and we work from a position of evidence so um as a result of the success of leap in the USA we it, the organization or movement as i prefer to 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 call it is spreading across across the world we're very established in the united kingdom we launched in the houses of parliament as our launch event in 2016 and as i say you know now we've got to the point where uh, next week for example i have an online event addressing parliamentarians um in the united kingdom i'm ad- addressing a significant number of mp's and um members of the house of lords next week that's in the morning in the afternoon i'm addressing uh, the parliament in kenya 
So we are having significant influence with our advocacy across the world. Just a few weeks ago, I spoke to the Parliament, the Lithuanian Parliament. In January, I spoke to a, a, a French Parliament. You know, we are we are growing in influence, and and in fact, over the next year or so, we will be launching the overarching entity of Leap Europe, incorporating chapters in in France, Germany, uh, Scandinavia, and and beyond. Um, so, yeah, it, it's it's good because we are growing and having such success because it keeps me optimistic. You know, and I'm a full time activist, like like many of our our membership. You know, we're we're committed to this fight um, as as, as full time activism because you know we realise that only through a change in policy we're going to re- we're going to save lives. This policy is killing millions around the world, and the the only way to win is to change policy we want to reduce harm save lives and reduce the power of organized crime so if anyone listening can support us at all in any way then please do you know you, you'll find the law enforcement action partnership website um with with any with any uh, browser search and there is a donate button but i think more useful is if you can provide any logistical help invite us to events um, and again, in Europe, if, if you're particularly if you're connected to any university, we love to speak at academic institutions in particular. Um, or if you have any other venue you would like us to speak at, then we are more than ha- happy to do so. Thanks. That's great. And we'll we'll include the links in the show notes for sure, because I think that's that's an important way to be able to get involved. Um, just to contradict myself a few minutes ago saying that data doesn't win emotional arguments. I think there is one area of data where you can, can help us see some opportunity. And that's sort of in the, the user rooms in Switzerland and that as a model of, of providing a safe location, safe dosing, safe materials and, and reducing harm in that, in that regard. Can you walk us through that program? Yes, certainly. Um, I'd, I'd be delighted to, because uh, obviously one of the things, one of the innovations that we do advocate is is uh, o- overdose prevention sites. Now, there's many there's many names for these things. Uh, quite often they're called drug consumption rooms or safe injection facilities. But I prefer overdose prevention centres or overdose prevention sites, which is the the Canadian way of naming them. Now, or if you uh, or if you ask my dad, they would be flop houses and. Room dens of iniquity and places where people go to do horrible things, but that's yeah, I know exactly. And there's also, and I detest the way that the cheaper end of tabloid journalism calls them shoot, shooting galleries or something like that. All of these horrible stigmatizing phrases, but essentially they are medical facilities that save lives. That's that's what it comes down to, and. But I should make the difference because you mentioned Switzerland. I mean, Switzerland has heroin-assisted treatment. So you can go to a place where you can have a prescription drug which is provided to you and you can inject it in a supervised facility. That's not what a drug consumption room is generally or an overdose prevention centre is generally because um, these are places where you're not provided with a drug. It's just a, a place where you can use them safely, where you can go. And if you've got a problem, there is there is help. You know, If, you, if you're going to overdose from an opioid, You've got someone there to look after you with naloxone. Or if you're using um, a stimulant problematically, you've got someone there in case you've got heart problems or or whatever. Now, we haven't got them in the United Kingdom yet. We are very backward thinking. And actually, you're for the most part pretty backward thinking in the United States as well. I believe there 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 was an attempt to get one going in Philadelphia. I think that's ongoing. And, you know, a shout out to those good people trying to make that happen in in, in Philadelphia. Um, but I hope that they are going to start happening in, around the United States. But I I went to um, the biggest overdose prevention centre in the world, in Copenhagen. I was invited to speak there. I spoke in their parliament and I went to see their facility. And I was shown around the facility by a senior former police officer who was a member of, of Lee. And he when he was the chief of police for Copenhagen, he was completely against the idea and fought it. He actually said, no, I don't want this. This will just attract drug dealers. It will, it will ruin our city. And he fought against it. 
but he was eventually persuaded to support it by a wonderful organisation called the Street Lawyers. And he ended up supporting it, and then he ended up supporting it actually being right across the road from the police station. And the biggest one in the world uh, is there, and it's the most incredible facility. It's amazing. They have, like, they have every possible need. They suit every need that those people need, would might have. For example, they even have a chiropodist clinic once a week, free chiropodist clinic once a week, because problematic stimulant users tend to get uh, problems with their feet from constantly walking all night. And so they have their feet looked after. They have um, big bean bags where they can where they can relax. There was a there was um, bird song. There were big fish tanks, beautiful fish tanks with them. You know, it was the most relaxing, civilized place to take care of vulnerable people, and, and it moved me so much. I mean, there has there has not been a single overdose in any overdose prevention center anywhere in the world from Melbourne in Australia to Vancouver in Canada or all the places in between that has them. Not a single death. Not a single death. And if that isn't an argument that every single town and city should have one, um, I, 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 I really don't know. But just, just let me tell you one last thing about this overdose prevention centre in Copenhagen. The last time I went to Copenhagen, I got invited to um, a leaving party of a, of a local community police officer. Now, I've been to lots of leaving parties, retirement parties of cops, and in my experience, they tend to happen in a bar, and it involves lots of drinking booze. And, and that's, but this was nothing like that at all, because this police officer had decided to have his leaving party in the community room, the social room, of one of the drug consumption rooms on his community patch. And so all of the street people were invited, all of them. And it was the most incredible experience because all of the street people were queuing up to give this cop a hug. They were queuing up, queuing up to wish him well and give him a hug and wish him well in his retirement. And in the corner of the room, there was someone gouging, as in they'd had a big dose of heroin. They were asleep in the corner. But no one cared. But these people were cared for and they cared, they cared for him so much as their local police officer that they were queuing up to wish him well. Now, that's what policing should be. Because in the Peel's original principles of policing, the police are the community and the community are the police. That's Peel's principle number seven. And I saw that in action in Copenhagen because they've decided to care for their vulnerable people. I think that's that's incredibly powerful. Uh, I think it it's both emotional but at the same time uh extremely powerful use of how uh, evidence and the evidence-based policy making can actually have a clear impact on everything from people to to law enforcement and ultimately to community and i think uh with mm. that um i just want to kind of uh, one last kind of parting thought for me here on this interview here neil is i was listening to kind of Joanne Hurry's uh, interview once uh, on TV and he was actually mentioning that while he for his book when he was interviewing Pablo Escobar's son uh, somewhere in Colombia or maybe in Argentina I mean I'm not sure of which country it was but um, where he kind of located him and he kind of interviewed him and I think he's his son had actually said Pablo Escobar's son had actually mentioned that the biggest fright or the fear that Pablo actually had was that if drugs were legalized, that would mean the end of his in end of his living uh, or, or the way of how he would make his living. Uh, so I think that kind of speaks to how the whole area and the whole international crime gangs and, and drug dealers, etc., big and small, have all made feast of the whole policy here in the last how many ever number of years, almost 50 years now. Uh, since it's actually come by. So this is incredibly powerful. And thank you so much for, for doing this uh, with us. And uh, we will definitely get the word out in, and we'll also put out something uh, in terms of of actually uh, speaking opportunity at conferences, et cetera, um, as well. 
uh, I think this will be incredibly powerful to actually change the narrative of that and we'll do our bit as well, Neil. Thank you. Oh, okay. Well, thank you very much um, for inviting me to speak to you. And it's, and it's so good to meet you again, even though it's online. Thank you. How did you find that interview? Did it affect you? Did it help you understand what was wrong? Well, this is not the only interview that we did. We have done many more for our main podcast, Scraps. And more importantly, we do have the narrative podcast series. It's a special 10-episode limited series on the therapeutic potential of psychedelics. And we call it Psychedelics. So please do go and listen to that. Please help us by providing your feedback and more importantly, by referring this podcast to many of your friends, families and relatives. Thank you.